TED Audio Collective. Hello, Jen, Manoush, and Thalia. My name's Sydney, and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience in Philadelphia. And I wanted to call and tell you a little bit about where I am in the hype cycle. Hello, Sydney, and your fellow ZigZag listeners. We've been hearing from a lot of you about how this season of our podcast, our exploration of the hype cycle, is actually mirroring your own life. I got so excited. Maybe it's a really good idea and I shouldn't even be sharing it. Yeah, as we've been talking about, the hype cycle has five phases. These are the different sort of chapters that any idea has to pass through. Some of you are at the innovation trigger phase or the peak of expectations, and others, well, it's not going so great. It isn't working moving forward. This is the phase we're diving into today, phase three, the wonderfully, horribly named trough of disillusionment. This is the phase when things go badly. Two years ago, maybe a a month or so, my division was laid off due to a fiscal crisis. From jobs that weren't as stable as they seemed to family projects like sleep training that just aren't working. I would say right now with my almost two-year-old that I am in the trough of disillusionment because she has decided that she doesn't want to sleep through the night. There are lots of you in this phase right now, and you've told us that you feel tired and stuck. Yeah, right now, I'm definitely in the trough of disillusionment. It sucks. I don't trust my project. I don't trust my hypotheses anymore. I don't trust my techniques. And that's really rough. And I'm kind of frozen in time because I'm not sure where to go. I actually am partly grateful that I'm here because it makes me ask the hard questions and reevaluate everything. But on the other hand, it feels crappy. (laughs) And that's no fun. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and as you know by now, this is ZigZag. And my co-founder, Jen, and I have so been there. We might still even be there. We still have to ask ourselves whether we can even survive doing this. This question about whether we can be good journalists and good mothers and still make stuff creatively. Well, like whether that's like a total pipe dream. Yeah, welcome to our pipe dream. And as the saying goes, misery loves company. So on this episode, let's wallow together. For once, let's forget positive psychology or self-affirmations and just call it. Sometimes things go wrong, horribly wrong, and it happens to everyone. There is so much we can learn, though, from failure, whether it's a toddler regressing, a wannabe tech tycoon whose business model is collapsing, or even a small American town that is in the thick of an economic crisis. I mean, basically, this is like the mini Detroit. We had the big three like they did. All right, stick with us. Zigzag, we'll be right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. The tulip bubble in Europe centuries ago, the Great Depression, the Great Recession. People get excited about something, in those cases, a certain kind of investment, whether it's a flower bulb or a credit default swap. People pile in, the market inflates, and then it crashes. Former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke didn't call it irrational exuberance for nothing. Capitalist economies are pretty much always tracking the peaks and valleys of the hype cycle. But what about some of the newer economic models that we've looked at on previous episodes of this show? Cryptocurrencies sure are sexy. But since prices plummeted at the end of 2018, we are in the midst of the so-called crypto winter. Quick little story for you. I was coming back from Providence, Rhode Island on Amtrak with my kids, and I overheard this guy behind me talking on the phone, saying, Bro, is it time to get out of this fake money thing and get real jobs, like at a hedge fund? (laughs) I am so glad for once that I wasn't sitting in the quiet car and got to hear that. Because, bro, yeah, you're in the trough of disillusionment. It was kind of inevitable. I had a fascinating conversation. I didn't just eavesdrop on it. I actually had a conversation with the author of a new book called The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. It's by Professor Kevin Weirbach. Hang on, don't worry. This is not a complete blockchain nerdy rabbit hole I'm about to go into, but bear with me. So Kevin is professor of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton Business School. And as many of you know by now, I think this new technology... Bitcoin, blockchain, all of it, it is the perfect storytelling vehicle for understanding this strange moment in history that we humans find ourselves in. As technology is accelerating faster and faster, Kevin says, we actually need to start measuring success on a slower and longer timeline. There is a cluster of technologies that everyone can see. Machine learning and artificial intelligence is part of it. Internet of Things and sensors is part of it. Augmented and virtual reality is part of it. All things that everyone can see are developing very fast and are going to be a piece of the future. But I don't think anyone who knows about technology can look at what's out there today and say, oh, we're we're absolutely certain. Lots of these systems are at the science project stage or they're at the early development stage. And that's not a reason to dismiss them. But I think we all need to have healthy skepticism. My co-founder and I had this experience where we joined Civil, which was using the Ethereum blockchain to try and create kind of an ecosystem for journalism based on a token, which is a whole thing. And it went really badly. Like the initial coin offerings, like everyone was like, yes, this is going to be amazing. We're going to raise so much money. And then the whole thing fell apart really fast. And now ICOs seem to be dead in the water. I have never seen... Like, it's like a seesaw or definitely a roller coaster, like with the hype cycle, but more like, whoa, up and then down so fast, changing like really fundamental ways of thinking about structuring organizations or even economies. Having gone through the dot-com bubble and the dot-com bust in the early 2000s, (laughs) that was a a real whipsaw, too. People really in 2002 thought the Internet thing was over, um, (laughs) except 
all of the real hardcore entrepreneurs who were building the whole social media world and what became Web 2.0 and the next generation of enterprise systems. That is the phenomenon that's happening, but it, it's not the first time that's happened and it won't be the last time in technology. The other thing is there is something great about people and organizations wanting to do wild, crazy, audacious things, even <laughs> if they could fail. It's always important to understand what the risk is you're taking, if it's a risk you can afford to take, what your assumptions are. This may turn out to be a fundamentally important technology that's largely evolutionary. Mm. Um, that blockchain, we may well look back and say, this was a way that the world became more efficient. And it didn't necessarily dramatically disrupt anything, but it's an incredibly valuable technology for organizations everywhere and for people coming together and so forth. Or we may say, no, it, it created things that were fundamentally new. Mm. You know, all this ties into the work that I do on law and regulations, especially if we're talking about money. And, and that's you know, certainly what happened with the whole ICO frenzy, right. billions and billions of dollars that people were contributing around the world. And a lot of amazingly innovative, creative things came out of it, but also a lot of fraud and scams <laughs> and a lot of things that blew up and failed. And, you know, all this ties in with a certain set of ideologies, the, you know, what's sometimes called the California ideology or the Silicon Valley ideology, this sense that technology truly will set us free and that this new industry and set of industries is working is fundamentally different from the old industries, different motivational structures, and we really can solve the hardest problems in the world. That's in many ways a really amazing, wonderful thing, mm -hmm. but it also leads to a tendency to too much assumption that we're going to solve all the world's problems, which is obviously what we're seeing now with companies like Facebook and Google and so forth, yeah. where now in some ways they're causing the world's problems. So I think that's the dichotomy that people see and rightly, I think, call out. And frankly, that's healthy. There are critics out there who are you know, just throwing mud, who, who really don't understand or want to understand, who are dismissive just to be dismissive. But there are critics out there who are making really serious, thoughtful challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, when you see, for example, people talk about blockchain will solve online voting. And there's some interesting applications there and some reasons why you, know, you might want to use that. But then you go and talk to pretty much all of the world's experts who have spent their entire career studying online voting and the huge security and technical issues. And almost to a one, they say this is dangerous and misguided to think that blockchain is going to solve all the problems because at best it solves one teeny piece of the problems and may make some other ones worse. So you know, that's the kind of example where it's worth going and talking to those people who really do have a lot of expertise mm -hmm. about this problem. And maybe they're wrong about something. Maybe they are underestimating the potential of blockchain. But if you just say, well, no, you don't get it because I just, I'm smarter and this is new and I get something that you just can't get, uh, you know, that's a road to disaster, I think. You know, I'm not rooting on the crash by any means, but it was inevitable that the bubble was going to pop. And I think we're at a time now where I think we've got a little bit more runway to really work things out. And I, I spend a good deal of time talking with regulators around the world. And a lot of them are really trying very hard to understand what's going on and to engage with the private sector and to you know, really try to think through what are good long-term solutions. And I really hope that the community that's out there takes advantage of that opportunity. Okay, 
I took away a great life lesson from that conversation, which is basically that failing is good if it buys you more time to think, to come up with a longer-term plan that is ultimately better. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, I think I'm veering into positive thinking territory. That is not what we're doing here on the Trough of Disillusionment episode. Don't worry, because after a quick break... The latest audio postcard from our producer, Thalia Beatty, reporting from the upstate New York town of Messina. And I think it is pretty fair to say that Messina is kind of the physical embodiment of the trough of disillusionment. And what people there tell Thalia explains a lot about our country's state of mind these days. We'll be right back. Thalia visited the North Country in upstate New York for about a week, and she spent many hours driving around looking at empty buildings, huge factories and shops dotting the landscape. Combine that view with the bitter cold and gray winter weather, and well, it's almost like she was driving around in the trough of disillusionment. It's a place where economic, even psychological depression can sometimes feel like the norm. And that's in real contrast to the hope, the peak of excitement that you heard in the last episode when Thalia went to visit the folks at Coinment who were talking big about building a massive Bitcoin operation. Locals confirmed to her that, yeah, the crypto hype kind of feels like a distraction from a pretty urgent and dire situation. I wish all these places were still here. Thalia stayed at the Bruce Bruce Hotel. Its owner, Gina Snyder, pulled out a map to show her and point out all the businesses that had disappeared from Messina over the last decade or so. Gone. Tim Hortons now. Will's Trucking's gone. That was a big one. Gone. Here. Gone. Gone. That was the best place ever for us kids to hang out. Nancy Arquette, a local legislator who also owns a handmade jewelry store, described the economic situation there in almost poetic terms. There's this very dark cloud that hangs over the community, and I think that is fear. We are afraid every day that we will wake up and the job opportunities won't be here. Rita Curran, also a county legislator and a nurse practitioner, told Thalia that Messina, like many parts of the U.S., has a drug problem. I have family friends that have lost their children to a drug overdose. And I can tell you that being in the emergency room, you know, we've had people we've taken care of that we've lost. We have a not just opioid, but drug problem overall that is slightly higher than the national average. I think that some of that comes from not having a lot of jobs or things to do. There was General Motors to work at. There was Alcoa to work at. There was Reynolds to work at. There were colleges with tuition assistance from the three plants. And I think that what's changed so much is that General Motors closed down. And not only did they close down, but they tore their plant down to the ground and are gone. After GM, the Alcoa plant closed. And having no jobs is bad, Nancy said. But having unstable work, that's actually pretty bad, too. People in the community get so excited to have that wage. And it's like, yes, now we can buy the car that we wanted to buy. And we've been looking for a house. It's demoralizing to be laid off. It is. But now you're laid off with a car payment. And you can't pay your mortgage. 
and now you don't have that job. So that is my big concern for employees in companies like this, is the promise, and then the promise is gone, and now what do we do with the debt that we have incurred or the dreams that we had? Thalia got deep into the dreams and worries of the people of Messina with a fella named Dave LeClaire. You met him briefly in a previous episode. He's the union rep who voted for Bernie. He's one of the lucky ones who still has a job with Alcoa. And on one cold afternoon in early January, he took Thalia on a several hours long personal tour of Messina. Dave got pretty philosophical about how not just Messina, but society and people in general have changed and how disorienting it all is. Here's ZigZag producer Thalia Beatty's audio postcard for this week. Think of it as a very human and open-hearted meditation on the trough of disillusionment. So where, like, where are we in Messina right now? We're in the village, we're in... Uh, yep. We'll go this way and come okay, back around. Great, that. perfect. Yeah, you, you direct, whatever you, wherever, however you want to... Take us. I was over there at Nana's for breakfast this morning. Oh, that's a nice little place. This used to be a dry cleaning business that had been here for years. I think there was three generations that actually began it, and they just closed a year and a half ago or so. Oh, wow. Yep. The original smelter itself started during World War II. And then after World War II, Alcoa, they bought it and took it over. And then they've had it ever since. In that time period, you had over 5,000 employees in that plant. Today, you got 600. I mean, I'm still healthy and everything, but I've seen a lot of people that retire and don't either see their first social security check or don't make it to retirement. Just recently, two of my friends that I grew up with, one was 44 and the other one was 46. Oh, my gosh. And both of them died of brain cancer. Now, is it linked to the plants because they worked at them? That's tough to say, or I wouldn't say, but it just makes you think about it. This is our mall. Okay, so it says St. Lawrence Center, and what stores are here? Well, I'll walk in with you and you can see. Okay. Now, through here, these all used to be restaurants at one time. Wendy's has been here all along. How they survived, I'm not sure. See, here's another one closing. Oh, man. You know what's missing? There's no mall music. No. <laughs> now there's a lot of stuff that just is, yeah, they, it's dead quiet. And so when was it that like everything kind of left here? It slowly went downhill. Uh-huh. But you know, if you, if you look back, like 2006, GM announced they were closing permanently. And then 2009, <laughs> Uh, Alcoa announced their idol in the Reynolds plant. It was down from 2009 till 2011, and then they restarted it. But you got to that four or five year window after GM left, and things progressively started going down. Mm-hmm. 
bring you out to the old Reynolds plan now. Okay, great. So you get to see that before it's dark. Uh, the transformations that you've seen through the years here is it's the decline because of the, the money that was here that's not here makes it difficult. I mean, basically, this is like the mini Detroit. We had the big three like they did. Yeah. And this used to be the entrance to GM. This whole area was a factory. Totally empty now. You know, is there like a, a sense of, I don't know, is it, this is too dramatic, but like a sense of mourning, you know, when this got torn down? Oh, yeah. Sentimentally, there's a lot of retirees around the community and stuff that work there. That it's not there for them to show their grandchildren or anybody anymore. And actually, my youngest son, well, they were tearing it down. I brought him over and was telling him because my father worked there for years. This is it. This is the old Reverend. Okay, so can you tell me what we're looking at? Yep. It's a huge building. And we, we pull up and I'm like, just what are we looking at? He runs me through this whole thing. And it's, it's the words are as foreign to me as cryptocurrency sounds when you're explaining it for the first time to someone. You know, it's just really specialized. He talks to me about how the whole thing works, and the sun sets. It gets dark. We're looking at the dozen cars that are in this massive parking lot in front of this enormous building. And what's located in this building now is Coinmint, is this cryptocurrency mining operation. In one aspect, I'm glad to see that something's being done here. Mm -hmm. In another aspect, the whole cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, they said there's going to be 150 jobs. They're like a dozen cars. That's generous, right? <laughs> you know? And even if they have 12 different ones for three different shifts, uh -huh. that's only 36 cars. But, I mean, nobody really knows what this cryptocurrency is. In a computerized world, you can do it from wherever you happen to be sitting. You don't actually have to be right there. And to sit here and look at it, knowing that when I was union president, you had 350, 375 great paying jobs with benefits that help support this community and the surrounding communities, gone for 12 people that might be making 40000 a year. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sad. Do you think the hard truth is that manufacturing won't come back to the United States? I don't think you'll ever see it come back the way that it was. Mm -hmm. I think it's scary, but yeah, it's coming. Everything's changing, and it's changing at a fast pace. And I think the older generation can't keep up enough with the youngest generation. I mean, I happen to be in the middle. I see the older point of view. I see the younger point of view. I agree with some of it. Some of it, I, I mean, the whole social media thing and everything else... And when you sit and you think about it, or you happen to pick up your iPhone the next time and you happen to get on Facebook and you and I were sitting together talking and all of a sudden Thalia comes up with a friend request. <laughs> How would they know that? You know, is it coincidental? Is it actually happening? You know, when you think about things like that, it, it makes you guess, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> It seems like we're covering a lot of ground, but I think it's related. 
whether it's the tangibleness of something or the intangibleness of it. And, you know, it's this huge question for our society of uh, how we create value together and what are our shared values mm. and um, how we know things. And it is remarkable sort of sitting here in front of this incredibly large building knowing it's it's history and seeing it's present and you just wonder like what's the end of the road can we get more abstract than this yeah it's crazy yeah i don't know it's crazy to think the job loss that is created by a lot of this and how how is it gonna help in the long run are we only gonna have one percent of the population with money and the rest nothing because we can do it all at home on a computer something that i think really needs to have serious discussion and and one of the biggest things i think really needs to happen because i see it around here a lot i'm involved politically all around and i've met with the governor i've met with congress people i've been to washington albany everywhere's and I'm excited to see the young people that jumped up to run, but they need a lot more of them. And they need it on a school board, in a local government, in a county government, because this is their future. And without their voice at the table and allowing the older generation to try and limp along with all the changes that we have, I, it's not working. I'm not quite sure how to respond other than that somehow as we are more connected, we are less connected. And it would be silly to imagine that we would reverse this. You know, that we're not gonna like, go back in time, but you need to practice. You need to, you need to figure out how to be connected with the people around you. I mean, one of the most amazing things about technology, I think, is that it leaves you more and more isolated. You get to choose yes. all your preferences. You yep. get to be very comfortable mm-hmm. entirely alone. Yep, that's right. It all boils down to like you're saying you don't have that contact you don't have that interaction that should be taking place but isn't and i think that that's also what's led to the loss of empathy or sympathy even that there could be a lady with a car broke down on the side of the road and 40 cars go by nobody stops It used to be if that happened, the next three drivers pulled over to see what was wrong and help her. But now they're either on their phone or they're thinking about something else or they just lost that touch of reality at all. That because now they're focused on whatever happens to be coming next for them. And I think that technology's played a major role in this and nobody really realized or If they did, they didn't express it enough. Because like I said, I sit on the Messina school board. You've got, instead of chalkboards, they have great big computer boards that they can pull up things with. And I actually asked a teacher this one night. I said, so when is it Google's going to take over your job? (laughs) What'd you say? And she said, there are certain aspects that they want us to teach through Google now. I'm like, that's just crazy. I mean, I wish they'd hurry it up and get to the Jetsons car or just program what you want and let it go. But I've sat here and we've been talking since three o'clock together, two and a half hours. It's one of the longest conversations I think I've had in a long time, but 
it doesn't happen that often, per se, in normal life or reality. I mean, I, I think this is part of the work I think journalism should be doing is facilitating conversations. So I, I spend, you know, two and a half hours with you, a person with a certain right. perspective, and then a bunch of other people get to hear that. And, you know, we won't play a two-hour interview, but we, you know, the, the effort is to try to convey experiences. And mm -hmm. specifically for audio or radio, it can be very intimate. I hope people will feel that they're sitting here in this car with us. Right. But what you've seen in the collapse of journalism, you lose that ability to tell the stories of other people around you and to give you news that you need to know. I think at its best, journalism has the opportunity to like facilitate these conversations about what is happening to us. Yep. I agree. <laughs> and hopefully this does facilitate and have that discussion between people, whether it's bits or pieces, or they hear something that just spurs that conversation to happen. That would be cool, right? That would be real cool. <laughs> I'm glad you're out here doing this, actually, because I think that would be really cool. Because it does. It gets it. It does have to happen, and sooner than later, because we, the path that we're heading is just, it, there's too many unknowns, and scary unknowns, you know. Uh, it's really nice to talk to you, Dave. You as well. It's been a good conversation. hope you all were as moved by that interaction as I was. Dave LeClaire, thanks so much for being so open and generous with your time. And listen, guys, after you hit rock bottom, here's some good news. If you make it out of the trough, according to the hype cycle, our diagram, the only way to go is up. We are going to careen upwards onto the slope of enlightenment on the next episode. That is coming in two weeks. We're also going to get into the controversial subject of whether blockchain technology is indeed horrible for the environment. I have read all the headlines, too, but I got to say, as I've gotten deeper into it, I've discovered it's not that simple, folks. You're going to want to hear why. Finally, thank you so much to all the listeners who have written in to tell us about their hype cycle story and recorded a voice memo. You can email us at zigzag at stableg.com or just reply to the newsletter. You are signed up for the awesome newsletter that comes out with every ZigZag episode, right? I've got links, a special note for you, the podcast that we are listening to here on the team, lots of good stuff. Please do sign up on our homepage, or you could just email us and we'll do it for you. We call it the Stable Genius Concierge Treatment. Many of you have taken us up on it. Again, zigzag at stableg.com, and our website is zigzagpod. Com. This episode was produced by me, Jen Poyant, and Thalia Beatty. David Herman is our composer. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer. Many thanks to Dan DeZula for his help, too. ZigZag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Hello, Sydney, and your fellow ZigZag listeners. So maybe too exuberant. Let me try again. 